You're listening to Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. From childhood favorites to classic, to new and forthcoming reads, you'll hear how the people who make books happen have been influenced by the ones they've read. Today, Tamsin Muir has chosen Miss Smilla's Feeling for Snow by Peter Hurg, and Kia Brown has chosen Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Tamsin Muir is a horror, fantasy, and sci-fi author whose short fiction has been nominated for the Nebula Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, the World Fantasy Award, and the U.G. Foster Memorial Award. A Kiwi, she has spent most of her life in Howick, New Zealand, with time living in Waiuku and Central Wellington. She currently lives and works in Oxford in the United Kingdom. Her debut novel, Gideon the Ninth, follows the space adventures of a necromancer and a swordswoman as they compete in a deadly and magical trial of wits and skill. My name is Tamsin Muir, and Miss Smeela's Feeling for Snow is my recommended. So the US title, because um, obviously Miss Smeela's Feeling for Snow is a Danish book, and it's English translated title, there are two of them. In the US, it is Smeela's Sense for Snow, and in the UK or, you know, in New Zealand and Australia, the title I grew up with was Miss Smeela's Feeling for Snow. So that's a really interesting discrepancy. Hilariously enough, leading in from the title, when I first heard the title as a kid, uh, you know, because this book came out in the early 90s, Miss Smeela's Feeling for Snow, I got the idea or imagining that this book was maybe about little granny who lived out in the woods. It was probably a really moody, cute book about the way she felt about winter. Um, Nothing could be further from the truth. Smeela is no granny. Smeela is a late 30s snow specialist who is investigating a murder mystery. This book is part of the Scandi New Wave. It's often called the first sort of the granddaddy book that started the new wave of um, Scandinavian noir. I mean, a totally different uh, stereotypal feeling to what I was initially thinking with, you know, this Miss Smeela and uh, living in this little cabin in the woods. It is an incredibly, I, I say grim, but it's also a hugely empathetic look into the life of one of my favorite and most difficult women in fiction. I mean, when I first started reading this and I thought about the fact that they call her Miss Smeela, I was like, wow, you know, who would ever bother to title this book Miss Smeela? Um, I'm not sure she'd like it. And then by the end, I was like, yeah, enough respect. I will call her Miss Smeela. I don't think I'm on first name terms with her yet. I picked it up in a old bookstore. You know, I'm particularly fond of my copy because, you know, it's got uh, on the flyleaf. It was intended to be a happy Father's Day present for someone. So, Tov, if you're out there, you know, your book in 1997 for Happy Father's Day, it's come to me and I love it. I hope he did like it. But, uh, yeah, that's how I got it. I'd always had this curiosity about the cover. And the immediate thing, you know, on my cover's edition, it's just a guy drowning. And this didn't really jive with my understanding of... uh, you know, this little lady out in the woods. So it really was a book by its cover this time round. My experience for that first time reading it was almost unbelievably overwhelmed. So, you know, I, I've read it in translation. I do not speak uh, Danish at all. So I have no idea about how Peter Ho's book reads in Danish. You know, the translation is by Tina Nunali, um, you know, also as Felicity David, that's her other name. It's Also not what I would have expected, you know, being stereotypical of Scandinavian noir. It's 
an intensely beautiful book that assaults you with information in pretty much every single sentence. Uh, it's one of those murder mystery books that you can read over and over and over again and just slap yourself by the end of it every single time thinking, how did I miss that? Wow. So it's a book I love coming back to, but the first time reading it, it was just like being hit in the face with a shovel, you know, a snow shovel, basically. I don't reread it as often as I would like. I come back to it about once every two years since I first picked it up, and that was probably in my early 20s. I reread it this January. I was writing a book myself about a heroine who, you know, I kind of like to joke that she's Smila's daughter, um, except that she's not. The entire point of Smila is that she has nobody. But um, I wanted to reread it just for the sheer pleasure of seeing this unreliable, spiky, mean narrator again. I have known that I've wanted to be a writer since I was about seven years old. It seemed to be, to me, like the one thing I could do. So I already read books from a technical perspective. And I think that in my early 20s, I was starting to get really interested in craft and the different ways in which people did things and books in translation as well. Um, you know, I did go on to read uh, Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco and be really interested about differences in translation and the host text. But I was starting to get really mildly self-important about like, okay, you know, let, let's see what I can take from this. And I think I read it in the point in my craft where I wasn't good enough to know what the heck he was doing and I still don't think I'm good enough now but I know enough to know the like the huge gap I mean you can't not read um Smila and think about the craft because it is such a beautiful book and again it's in translation you know I, I wish I could read Danish so that I could know what was Nunali and what was her but uh, all I can tell from reading the Nunali translation is that it is gorgeous it is exquisite um it, it just it has every sentence in place you know if I was going to get pretentious I'd say that the book is in itself like a snowflake just perfectly crafted you know just mathematically precise but also very beautiful without being you know too stark or too sparse I haven't found myself actually recommending Smila to many people. I guess I'm just really afraid of what if they don't like it? Because, I mean, of course, you're going to recommend books to people. It's not going to be their favorite book. But Smila to me is so important that I almost like ration her out. I think that I recommended her to about two people and you know it's one of my best friends favorite books and I remember very early on uh you know us both mentioning it was a favorite like oh wow okay you must be my person <laughs> it's a difficult book in so many ways because Smila herself is fascinating and repellent you know I'm like please love Smila Smila you know so important but I also recognize the very real possibility that you're gonna hate her Anybody who appreciates beautiful language, I feel that they wouldn't be able to help it but be moved by Smila. Anybody who appreciates a difficult heroine is going to appreciate Smila. Anybody who likes a murder mystery, anybody who likes, uh, you know, speculative fiction, because Smila is also, as well as being noir, does have elements of SFF. It's weird as heck. It's unbelievably weird. I love it. It just gets weirder every reread. And I don't say that lightly. <laughs> I think that one of the wonderful things about Smila is that it doesn't. Uh, you know, there are other books that are doing things that I would also proclaim as unbelievably weird. You know, I mentioned earlier, um, Name of the Rose is a book that I feel reaches the same 
weird heights, or at least Smila manages to reach the same weird heights. You know, I can't tell who's uh, in the front line there. But one thing I do love about the book is that, you know, when they wrote it, they broke the mold. It is totally unique. I have never read anything like it. Probably I'm about to get, you know, a million people saying, well, actually, this book is totally like Smila. But uh, as far as I have read, and I try to read as widely as possible, I have not found anything like it. Found anything like her. I do love the difficult characters, you know, especially the unreliable narrators. A lot of them get on my nerves. You know, I'm just like, oh, you know, just just shut up, tell the truth for once. But with Smila, I'm so indulgent with her to the very last. I'm just like, you do you, honey. You do you. That was Tamsin Muir recommending Miss Smilla's Feeling for Snow by Peter Herg. Her novel, Gideon the Ninth, is the first in the Ninth House series, is published by Tor.com, and is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Taz Muir. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Kia Brown is the creator of Hashtag Disabled and Cute. She has a BA in journalism from the State University of New York at Fredonia. Her work has appeared in Teen Vogue, ESPNW, Harper's Bazaar, and Marie Claire UK, among other publications. Her debut essay collection, The Pretty One, explores what it means to be Black and disabled in a mostly able-bodied white America. My name is Kia Brown, and red, white, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston is my recommended. This book is perfection. It's about the first son of the White House 
named Alex Claremont Diaz and his arch-rival, Prince Henry of Wales. And essentially, they've been arch-rivals for most of their lives. And they go at it at this royal wedding, and the paparazzi find out. And so it threatens both the relations between America and Britain, and so they have to spend time together. And in spending time together, they find out that they have more in common than they think, and they fall in love. And it is just such a heartwarming and funny and just beautifully written book that I think everybody should read if you love a good rom-com and a happy ending with some bumps along the way. I just think it's so smart. And Casey really did a wonderful job of world building and also making me feel so much for people who are so outside of my own experience. I liked the cover because I'm a really big cover person. Um, and the cover is like a it's like light pink and, you know, red, white and royal blue are the name of the title. Each has the different colors. And it's like the two men on either sides of royal blue. Anyway, I saw it on Amazon and I was like, this looks cute. So I reached out to my agent, Alex, and I was like, can you get me an arc of this book? And he was like, how did you hear about it? And I was like, I saw it literally scrolling Amazon. And I was like, that cover looks cute. I want to read it. So I was lucky enough to get an arc before it came out. And I've been obsessed ever since. I think what Casey does really well is she puts you right in the middle of their lives. So you don't have to do all the, this is, you know, this is that, this is this, this is whatever, that sometimes slows down a book. I think she just puts you right into the action so that, like, she builds the world around what you should already assume to know, but makes you feel like you do already know it. So you're not asking a bunch of questions. I think it's, like, really smart how there's such detail with place um, in terms of, like, physical objects that allow you to feel like you're in that room at the same time as the people that you're reading about. And I think that also helps move the story along really well because you jump from places in America to places in Britain and you see these really big, fantastical places that you could have read about before. But I think what is done so well is like, there's so much emotion behind the ways in which the characters see places. And so it feels like a brand new thing. You're reading about these palaces for the first time ever in your life because there's so much emotion behind the people who are occupying them. Um, and I think that's so smart because it, it takes what could be seen as a run-of-the-mill thing and turns it into something completely fresh and brand new because you're seeing it in a different way than you haven't seen before in other places that are set in these same places. You know, tons of fiction books set in America and tons of fiction books set in Britain, but just the way that she melds the worlds with the people in the book is really smart. And I think it's really interesting that someone has the sort of talent to be able to do it as seamlessly as she does. So in the book, spoilers, there are emails that are just beautifully crafted. They're like love letters, but for the modern day. And I just wanted to touch on those because every time I read one in the book, I got so excited because they're just beautifully done. And you really feel how much they love each other as time goes on. You really feel how they grow 
how it goes from like you know curiosity like oh this could be my friend to like this is the person I love and want to spend time with romantically and so I think that it was just really fresh and fun and smart and there's also this throuple couple outside of them that is just absolute perfection and I hope that someone somewhere will allow Casey to explore that throuple as well in another book. I think what was interesting for me was I was reading it just after I finished my own. Usually I'm reading through simply a reader's brain, but I think as a writer, I could appreciate the ways in which Casey actually went about world building. But as a reader, I was just so satisfied because I felt like I was really being shown all these things that I had never had access to. And so I think in terms of world building, it was just kind of like, okay, so this is the thing that you should kind of strive toward when you're off to create your own book, you know, your own fiction book, rather. Now that I'm older, um, my fiction writing, I write a lot of really messy women, women who are complicated and, and they don't have everything figured out. They don't know what's coming next and they don't know how they'll get there and they just have all these issues, but they have good hearts. And so a lot of my nonfiction writing is like, I was once that woman, you know, I mean, not not necessarily as, as deep as some of the issues that I have my characters, but I think I was once so obsessed with trying to figure out everything and trying to know everything so that when I realized that I didn't know everything and that I couldn't possibly know everything, I was like, I'm free to write these characters that don't have to be perfect and don't have to be conventionally beautiful and don't have to be this idea of what a heroine should be because I like to write characters who are kind of lived in that don't have everything figured out and don't know, you know, what's what and and don't, always have the finer things in life because I think that's what excites me is falling in love with characters that you root for because they don't have everything and you root for them because there's something deeper than what somebody might see on the surface and I think because I'm starting to see that deeper thing in myself I feel more able and willing to write characters that are messy and uncomfortable but that still have hearts of gold that you root for because you see bits of yourself in them. I really want to do a full-length novel or four or five. So yeah, that's that's definitely a goal for me. That's why I was so excited to talk about this book because I think this book is almost like a master class in how to properly tell a story and to keep your reader engaged literally from page one to the last page. And the fact that this is Casey's debut is just wild to me because to have that much talent in your very first book and your very first piece of work of this length is just unmatched. I think that people can learn so much from romance stories in general and I think sometimes romance stories don't get the credit they deserve because it takes a lot of work to take the sort of bones of like okay these two people are going to end up together but how they do it is the thing that's supposed to keep the reader excited and how they get there and what happens in between and who they are and who they're going to be by the end of the story is the thing that keeps at least for me, 
romance such an exciting genre because there's so many writers doing romance and doing, you know, doing it well and, and making sure that people are seen and understood in the genre that wouldn't necessarily be seen and understood 10, 15, you know, or even five years ago. And I think you worry about that, too, because people people have all these preconceived notions about what it means to, you know, write romance and what it means for people to have characters fall in love. But like I said, this book is just I think that literally everybody who's just a lover of a good story should be reading this book because I mean, it floored me. That was Kia Brown recommending Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Her essay collection, The Pretty One, published by Atria Books, is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Kia underscore Maria. Many thanks to Tamsin Muir and Kia Brown for joining us and sharing some favorite reads. Thanks also go out to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you're hearing, please do drop by on Apple Podcasts to leave us a rating or a review. We're always happy to see the feedback and reviews help other bookish listeners to find our show. You can find show notes, including titles mentioned, at bookriot.com slash recommended, and you can email us feedback, personal favorites, and suggestions at recommended at bookriot.com. <laughs>